Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Club. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night Podcast. Tonight, we have another great episode, but before we get into it, I need you all to do something for me. Get vaccinated. I'm recording this message just hours after my first dose of the Moderna vaccine. And other than like a small amount of soreness at the injection site, I feel great. And I'm super excited to get my second dose in early May. We are on the cusp of being able to do fun things in public again, wearing masks, getting tested and getting vaccinated is how we get there so let's get it done and also you know like rate and review this podcast wherever you get it it's not gonna help with the pandemic but it will make me very happy i'm really excited for this episode i got to talk with athena activist she's a psychology professor at Arizona State University that studies cooperation in ways ranging from its evolution in human societies all the way down to the cellular level with her work in researching how we think about cancer and potential new ways to treat it. She's also really into the zombie apocalypse and zombification, which is the topic of this show. So grab your go bag, head to your bunkers, and we're going to talk zombification with Athena Activist. Athena, thank you so much for talking with me. I, I got to tell you, I'm super nervous about this conversation. I know that your work is in cancer research and theory and all of these really kind of high-minded things. So I've been hitting the books. I've been trying to prepare myself for this and I am ready. I Let me tell you, I am ready to have a conversation about psychological theory, maybe even some pedagogy. Let's go crazy. Well, it sounds like you're ready, but are you truly prepared for the zombie apocalypse is my question um so i have a couple things of ramen um <laughs> be you know uh at the very beginning of the pandemic i got beans because everyone told me to um i still have those you know we're going on a year but they're beans so it's it's not a good deal to pay like 17 dollars for one pound of beans on amazon just you know <laughs> you know just for the future <laughs> i i normally i agree with you but i've seen what my my amazon podcast services numbers are and i am i'm here for it so thank you jeff bezos and creating a podcast platform that is for some reason pushing the science night Cop podcast awesome but but uh yeah, you know, I guess I guess I'm kind of ready, but you know, I'm I, I'm really into this whole theory thing. 
<laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I definitely study a lot of different things, everything from, you know, how, um, how does cancer evolve to, you know, how do organisms evolve to interact with each other socially? Um, everything kind of falls under this umbrella, though, of cooperation theory and mm. conflict. And so, you know, across systems, whether we're talking about humans or, um, you know, cells in our body or cells in the kombucha I've got over there in the corner, um, you know, these principles of cooperation and conflict apply across all these systems. And, um, Yes, and also in the zombie apocalypse. So, so are are we going to talk about the zombie apocalypse? I think we have to talk about the zombie apocalypse. Oh, thank God! Because I'm going to tell you, like, I read all of your papers on theory. You know, from the ER negative but not positive breast cancer paper all the way up through the cheating cell, which we'll talk about, and it was a little over my head. But zombies. I can, <laughs> I can get into that. <laughs> well, they're a, a great tool for thinking about and talking about complex topics. Um, you know, even just the whole like science behind zombification, like the biology of zombies is really about the evolution of behavioral manipulation. And so already we're talking pretty deep theory, but in a fun and kind of accessible way. I, I love accessible. That's that's one of my three favorite words. And fun. Who doesn't love fun? I mean, look at me. I'm wearing a I'm wearing a flannel shirt in the spring. I I'm screaming fun right now. Maybe I'm also screaming just zombie apocalypse based on my. I, I mean, I think look. your <laughs> yes. vibe. I mean, no, like it, it's good. I think like apocalypse casual is a good look in mm -hmm. general because um you know you can be ready for the apocalypse uh even if it strikes when you're when you're not expecting it um so just as a general you know lifestyle brand apocalypse casual sort of where i'm at before we start talking about our favorite go bag items and and like which style of teriyaki beef jerky is the uh best style of teriyaki beef jerky let's talk about how what is the what's the zombie apocalypse going to look like so we know it's right down the road. Is it going to be, is it going to be what we're expecting? Is it going to be what George Romero has told us to expect? Well, James, I think the qu first question actually is, are we in the zombie apocalypse right now? So I, I haven't been shut into a, a mall and I also haven't had to retreat to a, a shed in the woods. Um, so based on my research, I don't think so, but I, I think based on your questioning, yes. Yeah, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> so I so, I mean, the first thing, of course, if we're going to like talk about is the zombie apocalypse upon us is, you know, the pandemic that we're in right now. Um, is that a sort of zombie apocalypse? And I would argue that on some level, yes. Because yeah. what we know of COVID is that it actually interferes with sickness behavior. Um, so, you know, people might not be the undead, but they are the unsick. You know, they mm -hmm. feel fine. And people shed the, the you know, highest amount in the days before any symptoms. 
and then lots of people don't have symptoms at all. So, you know, what COVID is doing is essentially interfering with the normal sickness response, interfering with our immune system. And that makes it more likely that people will, you know, not realize that they're infected and actually spread the virus, you know, most likely inadvertently, right? They don't even know that's what's going on. One of the other things that COVID can do is interfere with pain receptors. So it actually makes you feel like you're not in pain when your body is, you know, like under complete assault by COVID. So it is messing with our minds, not just our bodies. So we have this virus that is making us act in a way that we wouldn't normally act. The virus itself is doing this to us. That that seems a lot like a zombification of some sort. Like we're no longer necessarily in control because we're not allowed to feel what we should be feeling and it's making us act different. That is that is that what you're telling me? That that's kind of the idea. I mean Although, you know, what we know is that COVID is interfering with the normal sickness response. So, you know, if COVID weren't, or, you know, if, if somebody wasn't infected with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, um, it's possible that they, you know, they're basically just at the same baseline that they would be if they weren't infected. But normal sickness behavior is to like lie down and take a nap. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not what happens in the times when people are most infectious um, with SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. And I think that's why we're seeing these super spreader events be not necessarily a bunch of people that are coughing and having the sniffles and really looking like they're sick. They're at, I don't know, for instance, just hypothetically at uh, South Beach uh, right now. Or they were in, I don't know, maybe a Smash Mouth concert for some reason in South Dakota. Because, you know, somebody once told me that if I can't go see Smash Mouth at a biker bar in South Dakota, that is taking away my first through eighth amendment rights. <laughs> yeah, I I think that, you know, this whole question of what kind of spread has been happening just completely below the radar is super important and critical. And, you know, that's why me and my, my colleague, Joe Alcock, uh, came up with this, this term, the unsick, because we think it captures this. It's like, you know, like the undead, right. They're like animated by the virus to, uh, move about. And, um, they're, they're not feeling the sickness behavior that they normally would if it were a, a more typical virus. Mm, mm. So maybe we should give just a little bit of practical advice. You know, I'm feeling great. I definitely don't have the coronavirus, so I can just kind of go out and do what I want. Maybe should I should I change my mindset if I'm thinking that right now? Yeah, so my colleague Joe Alcock and I, we wrote this piece for the conversation a few weeks ago, uh, and we end it basically saying, you know, if you've been feeling really good, uh, you might want to think about going and getting a COVID test. Like if you're feeling unusually good. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, I think it, it just, it, it turns things a little bit on their heads, right? Because we usually think, oh, like I can use how I feel as the guide for if I need to take it easy or not. And if I can like, if I can get through the day, I should. But 
that might not be the best thing for public health if we're dealing with a virus like SARS-CoV-2. I I do also love as as somebody who maybe is a little more pessimistic just how I'm feeling so great. I've never felt greater. Something has to be wrong. Obviously, <laughs> obviously something's wrong. That's right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I'm going to go out and say this is official advice because I, I don't think I can get sued or brought up for, for actionable purposes by saying yeah. that, but I think we should all be getting tested a little bit more regularly anyway. So, you know, yeah, I mean, surveillance testing is critical in a situation like this. And, you know, I know like at ASU, everybody who's regularly on campus is kind of in this pool where then, you know, they get surveillance testing and, um, you know, and that should, that should help a lot. Um, that does help a lot. Um, but in general, if you're feeling unusual, um, getting tested is, is not a bad idea because what we know about COVID is that it does actually interfere with feeling sick, interferes with immune system function, interferes with feeling pain. Um, so, you know, all of those things you can sort of add to the list of, um, potential symptoms. So if things weren't dire enough, now we add feeling great to the, to the, the list of, of uh, warning signs for COVID. You might be a zombie if. Yeah. Oh, man, <laughs> man. So you just, you feel great. Um, you you want to get out there and stumble down Main Street in the middle of the street for some reason at dusk when, when all of the fog comes out. I love that we're thinking about the COVID virus in this manner, because before it's always, you know, all of a sudden everyone gets really good at reading epi epidemiological charts and, and taking this very, very dry scientific only, not, not scientific only, but very hard science approach to this pandemic. And I think adding a little bit more fun might get people to think about it in a different way, rather than just being like, well, I've seen the numbers are on this trend. And if we add this trend to this model that this person I follow on Twitter has put out, maybe we can infer <laughs> something about this. Um, I work at a gas station. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, it is a zombie virus. And that's just like, you know, going with sort of just what we know and understand about the biology of zombification there are lots of viruses that affect their host behavior right i mean like rabies is one mm -hmm. um and that's it's not that unusual in general for you know parasitic organisms um to alter their host behavior in ways that propagate themselves so you know it's it's a zombie virus in that sense if you know if you believe in zombie ants and uh you know toxoplasma having an effect on rats that make them more likely to get eaten by the cats to complete toxo's life cycle. This is just another one of those things. You tuned into this podcast and you heard zombie apocalypse to your listener and you're thinking, oh, they're going to have some fun with it. And we are absolutely having fun with it. But this is the thing. This is not just in the realm of science fiction. This is this is science. There are, like we said, these viruses that can alter the host's behavior to move the virus on to make the virus more fit if we're talking evolutionarily. And there's also some cultural practices that can be considered zombification. Could you talk about that at all? Cultural zombie, as it were? 
I I would, but I really just need to check my Twitter feed. Do you mind if I? Uh... <laughs> yeah. So we're we're I mean we're totally zombified by you know, technology, um, by ideas. I mean, our brains and behavior are getting hijacked by these things. And, you know, and some of that is by design, right? I mean, like as humans, we are just really good at taking in social information and using it. And that's kind of how we got to where we are today as humans is because we can, you know, share information and benefit from it. Um, but it also means that we're kind of vulnerable to these various strategies for manipulating us through, you know, sharing information, whether it's sort of, you know, pretty straightforward marketing that's happening, or whether it's like a little more insidious kind of behavioral change happening on social media, like all of those things, you know, that is because we are inherently pretty receptive to mm. information from other humans, because that in general was on average, a good thing. We do have some filters, right? I mean, we don't just believe any bullshit that we hear, but some people more than others, maybe. <laughs> you know, I I always try to not click on like the seven weird things you can do to lose belly fat. Uh, you'll never believe number three, but I always click on it. Maybe, maybe I need to take your advice a little bit more. But what if that third weird thing that I won't believe is the thing that makes me beach body ready? <laughs> Well, it's so weird, right? Yeah. Like, I, I, the idea of like something unusual or strange or unexpected, like our brains are just like, oh, really? Like, that's something that other people must not know. And since it's weird and unexpected, I probably haven't encountered it yet. So therefore, it's more likely to be valuable information. And we all, you know, speaking about a skewed, a skewed uh, set of information, you know, uh, dear listener listening far into the future. Um, we just lived through a bit of a, an election um, where, man, if you let yourself fall down that rabbit hole, I could see that being just another way of zombifying yourself, just just really leaning into the politics a little bit too much. Um, in fact, yeah. I've been told on on Twitter on that that wonderful thing with no downside whatsoever that that I might already be zombified based on the hashtags I was using. Um, is is I there mean, the any hope is, in no, the future? <laughs> no matter what side of the politics you're on, you get zombified by it, right? I mean, like these, the, the fact is that, you know, all of these, you know, platforms, like they benefit from um, mobilizing people's energy and emotions and finances right yeah so i mean we're all victims of zombification but it's, it's partially because we've set up a system where that's the the way that people can get their interests advanced so yeah. you know i think we, we kind of have to think a little bit about you know what kind of institutions do we have do we want to have what are their vulnerabilities to getting hijacked how can we Shore, the, shore up those vulnerabilities um, or, you know, redesign some aspects of the system so that they're, they're not as vulnerable to being hijacked themselves or hijacking us um, or turning us against each other. Sure. All of those things that are not good for civilized society. And, and what about the actual hijacking themselves? So we're talking about hijacking the brain and I know just enough about neuroscience to be dangerous, but are we talking about like, chemical pathways? Are we talking about, um, you know, using the anatomy of the brain against itself via algorithm? Um, how, yeah. how does that 
how do you efficiently zombify somebody? So much of it is just about eliciting the emotions because, you know, once you've got somebody, you know, angry or afraid, um, their whole brain chemistry changes and it's much easier to, uh, you know, get them in a state where they are willing to do something, whether it's mm. sharing something or contributing money to something or, you know, uh, protesting something like that fact is that our emotions are sort of this, you know, this, this tool that moves us towards action. And, um, and that's been, you know, really expertly exploited in recent history, I think. It's almost like there are people getting paid many, many, many thousands of dollars to make the thing that makes you click on the thing, whether that is the article, the game, the microtransaction within the game. It's just, how do we make this a dopamine button? That's all the person is really going for on the, the kind of end user side of things anymore. At least that's what it seems like to me. Everything's been gamified. Yeah, I mean, there's the gamification. And then there's also just, you know, all these processes that have led to more polarization too, right? And a mm. lot of that is through, um, you know, hijacking people's fear about, you know, about the other, right? Like almost painting anybody who they don't agree with um, as the outgroup or as the, you know, the zombies. I mean, quite literally, like, you know, political groups, loose organizations of individuals, like they will call other groups zombies. I, I mean, people even think of like those who don't agree with them often as like, oh, well, they just must not be thinking about it. Clearly they're a zombie. So, mm -hmm. so it all comes back. It all comes yeah. back to zombies one way or another, James. Yeah. Everyone that disagrees with me on Twitter is a zombie. That's, that's, I mean, we, we've known that. Um, I don't, I'm, why do I make it feel like I'm getting into a lot of Twitter beefs? Although maybe I should now and, and uh, really kind of experimentally test this hypothesis by, <laughs> by, by ruining my life. <laughs> um, in, the, in the long tradition of self-experimentation. Sure. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I've always, I've always wanted to live through the, the uh, heroic age of medicine where, where would-be doctors would cut parts of themselves to see what happened, uh, you know, to see if, if that thing they thought was under there was really there. Are you and, living in the right century, James? No, you know, I've often <laughs> thought that, uh, why aren't we talking about humors anymore? We have all these leeches that aren't bleeding people. What's the point? Um, <laughs> and I think what we've really learned is that the Victorian plague doctor outfit is is very useful these days. Um, and we should be employing that instead of these little tiny masks. Why not full beak? That's Maybe. a good point. I mean, and the longer it is, the better it is at keeping the social distance too, right? You make it pointy <laughs> and long, then it's pretty oh, hard man. to get close without scaring people off. That's the episode. Hashtag full beak. Hashtag full beak. We're going to get it trending. Um, maybe, maybe I can, uh, maybe I can sell that mask design, put a, put a nice science night logo on the side of the beak, fill it with things. Um, I haven't done enough research to know what to fill it with, but I know it's things that smell nice. Yeah. So. Well, and then you're going to have to put a bunch of, you know, tightly woven layers of cloth too, to be consistent with the, the current research on, uh, what makes masks effective for COVID, but you know, throw in some frankincense and myrrh too. Why not? Mm -hmm. I mean, we'll obviously just sew a regular mask in the inside. So you'll be buying just a standard <laughs> mask that looks really cool. <laughs> so, 
So if you could find a way to zombify people into buying my merchandise, uh, I would be all ears. <laughs> we'll be right back, but first, a quick commercial break. Future James is breaking in to talk about Athena's book, The Cheating Cell, How Evolution Helps Us Understand and Treat Cancer. This book is incredible. It changed the way I thought about cancer by framing it as a thing that is subject to the same things that drive evolution as everything else, rather than an opponent in a battle. I recommend this book to everyone, but especially to anyone that's involved with cancer treatment in any way or knows somebody that is. Maybe a fresh way of thinking can lead to something new in the way that patients are treated. So go out and get your copy of The Cheating Cell wherever you get your books, especially if it's an independent retailer. I also want to talk to you about the Zombified Podcast. Even though it's not a member of the River Power Podcast Network, this show has become a must-listen for me. Hosts Athena Actopus and Dave Lundberg-Kenrick explore why zombification happens and why humans are so susceptible to it. Download it wherever you get your podcasts and find the answer to the eternal question. Have you been zombified? But what what do you actually have in your in your go bag? So in my go bag, I actually do have a go bag because I live, you can't tell now because there's literally nothing viewable behind me, but I live in the wilderness of Vermont, um, which is particularly creepy when it is light for like, you know, three hours a day in the middle of winter. Right now it's actually kind of nice. The green mountains are turning green again, but I always keep some kind of dried food item, um, a granola, as as we tend to have in abundance here in, in very hippie Vermont. Um, <laughs> and because I, because I work in an anatomy lab, I have access to suture material. So I always keep some suture material in there as well. Um, fire starting stuff, a little hatchet of kinds. What am I missing? What am I, like a sawed off shotgun? That sounds pretty good. Do you have... Um like a life straw or something like that for, no. for water. Mm. No, I live, be... I live in, in an area where I guess other than animal stuff, um, the water, the water comes out of springs and we just kind of put it in bottles and drink it and oh, probably so get Giardia. Even... All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it depends how much of a pathogen load you want to carry through the zombie apocalypse, but it might be good to get a life straw just in case. I want to get it over with quick. I want to get as many <laughs> pathogens. Listen, some people will survive the zombie apocalypse and some will feed uh, the zombies. And, you know, I, I might be in that latter category, but I want to hear what you have in your go bag. You're in a very different environment than I do. So maybe there's some different uh, things that you would have to think about. Yeah, well, I, I've definitely got the life straw because around here, you know, any source of, if you see any puddle of, you know, disgusting water, you're going to want to figure out some way of extracting something drinkable <laughs> from that. Um, 
so that's priority for me. Um, I've got some, some layers, um, because I, uh, am actually incapable of keeping my own body warm, um, without behaviorally thermoregulating. Like mm -hmm. if I run, I can get warm, but if I'm just sitting there, I can't get warm. So, um, so I've got some layers and like, uh, one of those, um, foil blanket things that you put on. So hopefully I should be able to stay warm. Um, I've got some supplies of the sort of like shortbread style, dense caloric food at, you know, basically emergency rations. So, um, enough for two days and, you know, I've got some, some basic stuff in there, like, you know, a knife and what else, what else have I got? Uh, some, some wool socks, just yeah. in case again, you know, thermoregulation issues. So, yeah. So I think, you know, I'll, honestly, my go bag is pretty thermoregulation oriented <laughs> because that's like one of my weaknesses sure. in general. So yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, an extra set of glasses in there. One of my old glasses. So just in case, you know, if, cause if, if you're, you don't have perfect eyesight and your glasses break, or if you happen to be wearing contacts the day the apocalypse hits, um, you don't want your eyesight to be compromised. No. So, yeah. We've learned that from, uh, we've learned that from the Lord of the flies, uh, which would be, you know, very, very apocalyptic in that sense yeah. as well. Oh, I've also got some honey packets that are like, um, this like, that's amazing a great idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you, I mean, super calorically dense so you can eat it. It's antimicrobial, especially if you get like the, you know, really good kind. And so you can put it on wounds and it'll both help to, you know, disinfect them. And if you put it down and you put some cloth on top, it's almost like a little like sticky bandaid thing. So, so yeah, so stuff like that to me, it's like, you know, you get these like little extra things that then mm -hmm. um, can be useful. I've also got a couple of, you know, little bottles of whiskey in there because, you know, that's. I have a couple large be. bottles of whiskey. Um, but that's just <laughs> probably just like a, a, a Vermont thing as well. That, um, that's actually in your everyday carry, right? Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I try to not be more than three <laughs> feet away from a bottle of whiskey. Um, maybe, maybe that's telling me something about myself. Maybe this is an intervention podcast. Um, you know, uh, although I guess since, since I'm in Vermont, I have to kind of localize it a little bit instead of honey. Well, I would probably be more like maple syrup, but we are required to carry no less than three maple ounces of maple syrup on our person at all times. I see. <laughs> um, with tasting notes and labels of origin. But that's just kind of like when you get your license, they anoint you with maple syrup and then let you know that if you do ingest log cabin from that day forward, uh, the little microchip they implant in your neck will be detonated immediately. Yeah. But I mean, that's not even maple syrup. So I totally get it no oh man so you know a lot of states they have industry where they'll regulate like steel manufacturing and everything the secretary of state of vermont is waging a war against things like log cabin that use uh by the way artificial maple syrup is actually brown rice syrup i've learned that because the secretary of state will not shut up about it uh and it's really great but it's not the same as honey. You know, the, the thing that I love most about honey is that it kind of lasts forever. They've gotten, I think this is a real thing. I think this isn't something I'm making up that I've heard like third hand, that they've gotten honey from Egyptian tombs that have been tested and not found to be poisonous to no way. children over the age of one. Uh, don't give your newborns <laughs> honey. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it is functionally immortal, which is great in the apocalypse. Yeah. So it's going to yeah. be like cockroaches, Twinkies, Keith Richards, and honey. Twinkies aren't that great after all. I mean, they're not great fresh. But... I mean, I mean, <laughs> like they're not great at lasting. Like they, yeah? they get, yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean, they, again, I'd rather have uh, a honey uh, crystallized. Oh, especially when it gets crystallized. People throw it away. When it gets crystallized, you're ruining it. You're, you, you need to yeah. just eat it. Eat it like a, yeah. like Spread a it on your bread. Mm, wonderful mm, now i yeah. i'm gonna eat honey this could lead to a different kind of apocalypse when i've just eaten all the honey in the house after this recording <laughs> um and you know for all the uh, aspiring podcasters out there it is it is great to add to your tea and give you the dulcet tones that you're hearing right now um it there really helps with the low end <laughs> i will have to keep that in mind i i have not used it to those ends but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah if you want to increase your timber just a, a teaspoon of honey in your in your pre-recording tea <laughs> awesome <laughs> so <laughs> so what are the other things that we have to think about when we're talking about the zombie apocalypse you know otherwise uh you know we talked about zombification but we didn't talk about the apocalypse side of things um other than preparations yeah well bags, i mean the whole question sort of, of like can you trust people in the zombie apocalypse yeah you that's know that's a huge issue i'm curious what you think and we can chat about it hey i'm always the person that watches the walking dead and then talks to the person next to me that did not ask it's like you know people are the real danger in the zombie apocalypse man is the virus <laughs> Um, so I don't, I mean, I tend to not trust people in general, maybe again, that's just the, I grew up too close to Philly and we don't trust anybody about anything. And then I moved to Vermont and was, I'm still taken as an outsider. So <laughs> it's interesting that you bring that up because probably the most cynical period of my life was when I was living in Philly. So yeah, yeah it rubs yeah. off on you really quick. <laughs> Oh, unless I love that place, though I have to say I love it, but it is—it's pretty, pretty cynical. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> unless the Phillies win, then it's like, hey, it's great. Nothing, nothing can ever go wrong. Grease the poles up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Philly, famous for destroying itself after a victory, uh, <laughs> and just kind of like going about its business after a defeat. It's like, yeah, no, this seems right. We've, we've, we've earned this this uh aspect of things but no like i i really don't think i could trust anybody in an apocalypse because i know what i would do to like protect my family and the people around me and i think i'd probably be part of the problem um do you think that's going to be a bigger issue than the actual threat that we're thinking about well so this is the way i see it as humans, we have always had to depend on each other in order to survive. Mm. And we've kind of lost sight of that, I think, because of just how deeply our lives are integrated into markets that it's like we forget that there's actually people doing stuff that makes it possible for us to like get groceries you know, delivered to our house or, you know, have like a pen that's really great to write with or, you know, anything. Like how many people did it take? to make this pen that I really like, that I completely take for granted because I can just 
order a box of them. Right. Anyway, but back to survival, like as humans throughout our whole evolutionary history, you know, people did not survive as loners. They survived and Mm -hmm. they thrived as parts of communities. And um, especially when things get bad, people have to depend on others for, for help. And, you know, if you look at what happens in the aftermath of disasters, like especially in the first week or two, like after a a hurricane or an earthquake or, you know, some other um, natural disaster, people band together and help each other without expecting anything in return. And there's this like spontaneous outpouring of generosity and trust and help where it's like, People aren't, you know, keeping track in their little books of if they're getting paid back, they're just like, oh, somebody needs something, I can help. And, you know, I think that in any disaster situation, that actually elicits um, in most people this sort of, you know, spontaneous level of generosity and trust. Now, can that be maintained? for, you know, a a really long time um, under threat, or if, you know, the environment and the situation is kind of pitting people against each other, which sometimes, you know, that does happen, like on the Survivor show, right? I mean, it's like, if you if you pit people against each other, yeah, they're not going to be nice to each other. But if, you know, what people are having to deal with is a challenging situation, where, you know, ultimately, people will have a greater likelihood of surviving if they work together, then I think, that can elicit some of the, you know, better angels of our nature rather than just turning us into mindless zombies worrying about ourselves and our next of kin, you know? I've been very fortunate in my life that I haven't had to live through a lot of strife and emergency situations on like a a, a regional or or things other than just personal day-to-day things. But there were a couple times where I was having to either rely on a community or be part of the community that is is helping a large group of people. Uh, one of those was I, I used to live in Central Florida, and I was there during Hurricane Ivan, which was not nearly as bad it was as it was going to be. But there was the, you know, we need to check on our neighbors, make sure everyone's okay. Do you have water? Can we get you water? Can we do stuff for you? That sort of thing. And then again, uh, with hurricane, maybe it's just me and the hurricanes are following me, but up here in Vermont, uh, Hurricane Irene came through and really wreaked havoc on us, especially some of the more remote areas of the state. And that was a, like a whole regional approach to helping the state of Vermont through the disaster. You know, within hours after the waters kind of subsided, people from New York, Maine, New Hampshire, uh, not Massachusetts, maybe they had their own issues, but uh, New York, Maine, and, and New Hampshire kind of answered the call. So while I do love to be a cynic and say, I don't trust you anybody. I've witnessed and been part of people trusting people and getting us through things. You know, even in this own pandemic, we saw loads of celebrities uh, singing Imagine, and it just changed the world in one Twitter video. (laughs) Yeah, amazing outpouring of uh, cooperation there. Yeah, and they're they're just beautifully appointed homes uh, with meticulously thought out backgrounds. Yeah, that was Um, inspiring. Yeah, yeah, it was a real ADBC moment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what you're saying is there's there's hope 
right? There is the thought that there is a desire for community somewhere buried deep down inside of us. Yeah, I don't think it's buried that deep. You know, I think it's just constantly kind of batted away or shoved down by the systems that we are embedded in that make it really easy to have low friction transactions that Mm. move stuff and services around. And, you know, like that's a system that uh, is, is really good at um, propagating itself and, you know, Hey, we're all, we're all living in it. Um, And I mean, and it's not all, I mean, it's not like it's all bad. I mean, we've had a lot of access to things like telecommunications and, you know, deliveries and things during this pandemic because we have a very robust market system, but there are a lot of people who do get left behind and, Mm. you know, don't get kind of incorporated into those or they don't get the benefits that come from having those systems. Um, And so, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I guess that's another, that's a separate issue. (laughs) Oh (laughs) yeah. With with markets, but uh, yeah. Anyway, bring it back to the, the, your first point. I I don't think that human generosity is um, so deeply buried. It's just our our day-to-day lives are not necessarily structured in a way that we get lots of opportunities to engage with others in sort of genuinely generous contexts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so true. You know, uh, everything you just said, this pandemic has been a, a real raptors testing the fence sort of thing where we've found <laughs> the porousness of some parts of our society, you know, moving to digital as a way to provide education and other things, but then, oh, wait, there are lots of people that don't have the access that they need for this to be effective. There are the things that have really helped us in isolation with delivery and all sorts of things, but then there's all of the problem of, well, we're still isolated. Um, This is is helping us get our stuff on time, but there is still the isolation, but it's found the strong points. And I've I I hope, I really hope that local communities are a little bit stronger coming out of this because we've had to kind of just deal with the people around us lately. And I've definitely come to know my neighbors much better. Uh, Maybe it's because as I look past my computer screen while recording this, all I can see are my neighbor's houses. um, And thankfully, they're not doing anything weird right now because I would be talking about it. I'm sorry. I just, I'd have to do it. So, you know, maybe yeah. there is kind of hope going forward for for yeah. things like that. And and James, you know, we've looked at lots of societies in the Human Generosity Project. So the Human Generosity Project is this, this big multi-method, multi-site project that I co-direct with Lee Kronk. And we've you know spent time in societies around the world looking at people's generosity. And in particular, when do people help each other without expecting to get anything back? And across all these societies, the pattern is um, pretty much the same when there are unpredictable and, you know, uncertain situations, um, then people help one another without expecting to get paid back. On the other hand, if there's things that, you know, are predictable and controllable and all of that, then people will often sort of keep track, like, oh, I'll help you, you help me. But for things that are just like out of the blue, um, the kinds of things that you might, you know, have insurance for in a market integrated society, those are the kinds of things that people 
often, you know, help their neighbors, other community members without without expecting anything. Like if someone is is sick or injured or if there's a death or, you know, a natural disaster or an accident, like those kinds of things, people jump in to help without expecting anything in return. And, you know, for anybody, you know, think about it, like people have helped you, right? When unexpected things have happened, you've helped other people. Um, mm-hmm. It's just this sort of automatic response of like, oh, you know, something bad happened to this person, it wasn't in their control at all, and I can help them. So if it's not a big, a huge cost to you to help, if you have the ability to do that without threatening your own ability to take care of yourself or your family, then, you know, most of the time people do it. Yeah. And it's really important to to remember that too. You know, as I said so many times in this, it's like a broken record. I, I tend to be more of a cynic, but you really do have to think about the times that people went out of their way to help you, uh, just like you said, with no no expectation of any reciprocity there. Maybe yeah. maybe thinking about that is is the thing that's going to make my my heart grow three sizes during this very podcast episode. Well, you say you're a cynic, but I mean, you kind of are doing altruistic things even by having a science podcast. So I don't. I really am about kind being of changing the world. That's true. Um, <laughs> You're absolutely right. One thing that I do want to hit on as well is the theme of the zombie apocalypse that you've adopted in your, not just your work, but your science communication. Can you talk a little bit about how you use talking about the zombie apocalypse specifically as a jumping off point, uh, just like we did it today, really? Yeah, I mean, to me, it is just a really fun way of getting people talking about important issues. So, you know, my podcast is called Zombified. Whole idea is to talk about all of these different things that affect our behavior um, and to do it within this frame of, you know, well, how are these other entities evolving to hijack our minds, you know, whether it is viruses or multicellular amoebas or algorithms, you know, what is that process of hijacking? How does it happen? And it's a, it's just a really a fun frame for ultimately a very general thing, right? Which is that we're influenced by things. And sometimes those things that influence us derive some benefit from that influence. So that's kind of where the podcast started. But even before the podcast, I was the chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And um, we had a meeting in person in 2018 in the before times where we brought together these scholars from all over the disciplines, you know, everything from medicine to art to public policy to evolutionary biology of course to look at you know well what are the problems we're facing now what are the problems that we're going to be facing in the future and how can we as a community of scholars come together to wrap our heads around that mm-hmm. and we required that everybody frame their talks in terms of zombies, the zombie apocalypse, apocalypses, zombification, etc. And this made for a really fun meeting and one where um, people weren't using jargon, which was yeah. amazing. And, you know, not only did they not use jargon, but they replaced that jargon with a shared language of 
the zombie apocalypse. So all of a sudden, you know, we had people who did work on insurance policy, talking with epidemiologists, talking with engineers, talking with doctors, talking with artists, um, using the language of the zombie apocalypse to think about, you know, what the challenges are that we are facing as society right now. So that has been super fun. And, and we ended up holding um, our 2020 meeting online and you can actually watch about 80% of that meeting on YouTube um, on channel Z, the Zam 2020, um, because we held it as a live stream. So, you know, no boring webinars of people monologuing, no offense to people who have altruistically organized such things, you know, during the pandemic, but we, we just didn't want to, to do that. So we had a, a live stream, which essentially was like three days of podcast style stuff mm. on live stream where people could, you know, ask questions through Twitter, through Facebook, um, through YouTube, and had a really amazing group of speakers and also artists involved like Baba Brinkman. He uh, made raps every day, uh, you know, kind of about what was going on at the meeting. And, you know, we just had a lot of fun and as we had so much fun that we, we kept doing it after the meeting was over. So like every Monday at, at 1030, we have a show on channel Z and we have like a whole set of shows that we've got There's So there's a go bag challenge where we talk about stuff like, you know, we were talking about earlier, like what's in your go bag and what do you need to have in your go bag? We've got the Dr. Zed show, which is me and Joe Alcock. Um, Joe Alcock is Dr. Zed and I'm kind of, you know, helping out in the background. Um, we've got a, <laughs> yeah, we've got a new show, Undead Live, that I host with Dave Lundberg Kenrick, this old apocalyptic house. If you're thinking that you might want to buy a plot out in the woods and you're not sure what to do with it, lots of shows. Oh, Eat, Pray, Run for, you know, oh, slow man. food and the zombie apocalypse. So lots of options. If you are into zombie apocalypse TV programming, we've got so, so many hours of um, live stream content up and um, you can find us every Monday at 1030 during the academic semester doing another show. So, and I will be linking to all of that on our website. I've got to say, I love everything you just said, but specifically two things really came to mind is the interdisciplinary nature of really everything you do is so important. I guess the best definition of myself is an anatomist. And if you put five anatomists into a room, we're not going to be solving the world's problems. But if you have an anatomist in a group with a bunch of different disciplines, you can really start to get the work done. And framing the conversation around anything that's not necessarily just laser focused on that one field is a way to include the whole group. And it's absolutely genius. And I'm sure you know that the other thing that really stuck out to me is just the sheer amount of puns uh, in channel Z. Uh, and as a father, I it really, really hit me right in the dad joke, Gene. <laughs> so hats off to the work that you're doing, both in interdisciplinary translational work, everything under that umbrella, and the puns, the jokes, the inside jokes, the dry, dry, dry as a zombie's flesh humor that goes into it as well. You really fleshed that one out. <laughs> 
We're just about out of time. I really appreciate you talking to me. As we finish up, I want you to tell us where we can find you, follow you, and support you in the most effective way possible. Oh, thank you. Well, it has been so much fun. And I would love to hear from any and all of you. I am Athena Actipus on Twitter. Um, I also just got on Reddit and I love it. So, um, you know, feel free to like look me up on there and, uh, you know, comment. I, I like try, I've tried to post pretty regularly stuff that I think is interesting and engage on there. And yeah, you can, I mean, I'm at ASU. So you can always go to my academic website there or, or just uh, athenaactipus.org or activislab.org. I've got lots of resources up there. So you can find more and yeah, definitely reach out. I, I love to hear from people who are interested in all of the work that I do, whether it's my work on sort of, you know, cancer and multicellular cheating and cooperation or stuff on human societies, or of course the zombie apocalypse. So I look forward to hearing from all of you. It's all really great. Go and find out more about Athena Actipus's work. She is amazing. Thank you so much and have a great night, everybody. A huge thank you to Athena Actipus for agreeing to be on this show. I'm such a huge fan of everything she does. And now that the interview's over, I can admit that I was barely holding it together. So go check out everything she's involved with, including her work that she's doing at Arizona State University, Channel Z, The Cheating Cell, The Human Generosity Project, and anything else that she finds worthy of putting effort into, all of which will be linked on our website, SciNight.com. While you're there, why not send us a message, especially if you're involved in science and want to be part of this show? Or you have a great idea for a future episode. Either way, I would love to hear from you. Also, check out all the other shows from the River Power Podcast Network. We have Pulp from Beyond the Veil. Please enjoy the view. Stone Soup. Too many hats. And who knows what we'll come up with in the future. And when that news comes out, I'll tweet about it. So follow this show at Science Night One. And I'm at James underscore read three. I'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode. And until then, have a great night. Um, then, quick question. Do you, are you going to have a video version of this or is it just audio? No, I don't. All right, I think I'm good. pretty enough for video. I have a face <laughs> specifically for the audio only format. Oh, that's not true. No, that's very true. <laughs> <laughs>